What is going on? Welcome to Land Podcast. This is Jake Hofer, and this week we have a fantastic episode here with Steve Hansen. And this is from the first weekend in August when we were in Iowa. Had the opportunity to visit with Skip Sly, who was a previous guest of the show, and uh, record a little bit of content, record a podcast and an Exodus podcast, uh, which is going live this week. And then we also got to spend the next day with Steve Hansen. Steve is a very interesting guy, and I learned so much from the both of them the last those two days. So I uh, just want to say thank you to all the guests that have come on here to share their knowledge, share their experience. And I think that is what is collectively making the land podcast special, in my opinion. So just a great resource to learn. And uh, I get to learn here right along with you guys. So before we get into this episode, a couple quick announcements. Velva Fest for Exodus is starting to wrap up. You can use the code SUMMERBUCKS to save 18% off basically the entire trail cameras, the solar panels, the gear, basically everything but the arrows. So a great opportunity to lock in those savings here. On top of the savings, you're gonna get a scratch off card with every single camera order. And the beauty of that is every single one of those are a winner. And so there's a wide range of prizes on those cards. So kind of an, an additional bonus that we're putting in there for you guys to help celebrate Velva Fest. Also, I wanna say thank you to everyone that has taken the opportunity to sign up for the email newsletter. I know I sent out a pile of Pat Porter books. I've shipped everything that I have from him. So I know some people have mentioned, hey, I signed up for that, where's my book? Well. I'm out of them. I've sent them all out. So I want to say thank you to everyone that's done that. We're going to have some more cool, I'm thinking of some cool ways to help get exclusive resources to you guys for supporting the podcast and signing up for those newsletters. So I would say continue to sign up for that. We're going to have some great things and you guys are going to get the first crack at anything like that here again. And I just want to say thanks to Pat Porter. I'm telling you, he sent me, I bet he sent me 50 books. And so I shipped all of those out and, uh, paid postage for those, wrote the envelopes on myself. So um, so I'm glad the people that took advantage of that, but unfortunately we are out as of right now. And not to extend the front end of this any further, if you are first time listening to this podcast, the goal of it is very, very simple. It is to help 100 people buy their first piece of ground. And there's a few ways to be part of that 100 uh, people group here. So number one, if you are in Illinois and you want help looking for your first parcel and you are in my neck of the woods, I'd be more than happy to help you. Number two, if you are outside of where I am familiar and you're in a different state, I will connect you with a broker that I would personally do business with. If there is no one that I know in that area, I will not send anyone. I'll just say, hey, I don't really know anyone over there. And so unfortunately, I can't help too much. And so if I'm referring you to someone, it is someone I would personally do business with. And the third one is if you just simply learn from this, you want to send an email um, or a message on Instagram or however you want to get a hold of me and just say, hey, I am in the process of buying my first piece of ground or I bought my first piece of ground with the help of what you have done here on the podcast. It's very simple. That is what we're trying to do here. And um, I just want to say thank you to everyone for sending those because we're just we're cruising right through here. I think I got two or three this past week that people sent out messages saying that. So that is so rewarding. And we have some great podcasts here coming down the pipeline even further. And real quick, before we get into this, Steve's been in the business for a very long time, a very sharp guy, had the opportunity to spend a day with him. And I learned a lot. And I think um, this podcast is kind of just the start of it. I'd definitely like to do some more content with Steve because he has a lot of really interesting ideas. And his story is really cool um, on the first farm that he ever bought and who ended up purchasing it from him. I think you guys are in for a treat here for today. So hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Let's get right into it. Here we go. First off, Steve, thanks for thanks for having us here. Um, really, really enjoyed the day. Appreciate you taking time out of your schedule because I know you're busy. And uh, no problem, man. Learned learned a lot walking, hanging cool. some cameras up, um, sitting on four points, didn't draw, hoping hoping to draw next year. Yeah, this was supposed to be a different podcast about planning your hunt and hey, we still are. stands. We still every, are. Yep, just one we year later. So. Yes, I'm really excited for it. Um, it's the anticipation builds oh, yeah. more every year. Part of the story. Yeah, so um, before we get into it, I mean, I guess take a chance to introduce yourself. I know, I think we first met originally, it was probably like 2017 at the Great American Outdoor Show. Yep. You stopped by the booth. Um, I think one of the clients that you ended up having a hunt with you in the past had some cameras or bought some cameras. You yep. had some cameras as well. The original Exodus Lift One. Yep. And uh, still have them working good. Yeah, so. which is really cool because I think uh, here, you know here we are five years later and uh, nailing down a, a hunt here for this upcoming season. But take a chance to introduce who you are for anyone that doesn't know uh, what you're up to. 
Well, my name's Steve Hansen. Um, we kind of involved in all aspects of land and, and hunting here in Southern Iowa, mostly in Monroe and Appanoose County. Um, yeah, we kind of specialize in real estate and land management and have always been involved in a guiding business as well. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, we come out to this area at least twice a year. And every time I just, it's hard for me to comprehend how quickly an area can change in just terms of just development and in a lot of good ways too. And what I'm saying is so much great deer habitat has been built in this area in the last 20 years. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I know just us personally, we've probably converted literally thousands of acres of what was rough cattle pasture into either, you know, just productive hunting land, you know, quality CRP and, you know, really made a difference in a lot of these properties. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And so diving into kind of your past history, you are from Illinois originally. Yep. Grew up in Glen Ellen, Illinois. Cool. So, and then you found yourself in Alaska. Yep. How do you, how do you get, so you got in Alaska. How did you get to that? Cause I think a lot of people probably young, that's their dream. Like, Oh, I want to go to Alaska and guide. Is that kind of where you were at? Yeah. You know, I, it, there's one other step in there. I was, um, grew up in Illinois in high school, took a trip to the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota and loved it up there. And after my first year of college, got offered a job up there. And as a summer job, went up, did that, really liked it, transferred to a college up there, stayed up there. And then my second year, that organization needed help with trade shows and asked if I'd take a semester off school and help them with their marketing. And I, you know, you know, who's not going to at 20 years old, get paid to travel around and do that. So I did that. And one of the first shows that I, sports shows I did on my own, the, there was an outfitter right across the aisle from Alaska. And I got to talking to those guys and he said, if, Hey, if you ever want to come up and, you know, work up here, you know, come on up. And I said, I hope you're serious. Cause I'm going to be there <laughs> and I'm literally going to show up. And he literally just kind of wrote Yakutat, Alaska, be here you know, a couple of days before September 1st. Pre-internet basically. Yeah, that's how it was. And I never heard from him again, never talked to him, but I figured out where I needed to fly into and I flew up there. And That is and so crazy. It's, it's the craziest story because I remember getting there and nobody picking me up at the airport and they're, and standing there like, oh, sh- what have I done? You know, this isn't good. And uh, finally, I remember him saying that all the clients flew out to their lodge f- through the air, ch- air charter place. And I saw the air charter right across from the hangar so I walked over there and I told him who I was and I said, I'm supposed to fly out to Jim Keyline's camp. And the guy's like, well, we don't have anything scheduled. And then, yeah, so he got on the radio and he called out to the lodge and they said, oh, what? And he goes, oh, I bet. Yeah, I forgot about that kid. But, but they go, they said, next time you have a flight going that way, have him come with. So I sat around town there for a day or two and eventually flew out to camp and loved it. And it takes two years to get a guiding, a guide license. So I, worked as a helper packing out moose and mountain goats for a while and then got my guide license and ended up guiding up there for 10 years. So that is wild. Yeah. This, yep. Cause now it's like we can over communicate so easily. Like we'll be here. I'll be there in five minutes. I'll be there. Right, in two exactly. Minutes. Text to messages. And, yeah. yeah. Literally we had a conversation at a show in February and then I showed up at their lodge. So that was literally the only communication. Have you always been the type of person just to jump both feet forward because yes, I would consider absolutely. that. Yeah, yeah that yeah. is like very. I, <laughs> I call it no it. no brains, no headaches. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So you were out there. How long you guided there for a while, didn't you? Yeah, ten years. Yep, yep. ten years. And it's kind of like a process. They have a real regimented thing to get your guide's license, and then I actually got my outfitter license, and you know stayed with that for a long time. So, what did you really enjoy about that? Oh, the adventure. You know, you know, you, you go there for the hunting, but really, what you're what I was after was the adventure, you know, whether it was, you know, hunting brown bears in the thick brush at, you know, close range or, you know, climbing in the cliffs in the mountains, mountain goat hunting, flying in the plains, jet boats in the rivers. I mean, everything you did had some degree of danger, which, you know. I've noticed that too, because yeah. I'm like, you're running the chainsaw on all yes, this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I've always you're, kind of. You're running the dozer. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I've always kind of embraced that side of things. And that's, that, that's where it all started from. Yeah. That's but, really cool. Is there any piece of advice that you received from either, either the people operating that business or a guest throughout that process that really stuck with you? Like any, it could have been a life lesson, could have been a hunting lesson. You know, what it was, was obviously when you're working in Alaska, you know, on hunting trips, they're extremely expensive. So you're dealing with successful people a lot. And 
pretty much whether it was told to me or I just sorted it out, a lot of those people had made, created their wealth through real estate, you know, and that's sort of where I, you know, it seemed to be, wasn't everybody, but a lot of people said, oh, you know, I started buying this, these houses and then pretty soon they're worth this. And I was like over and over again, that was sort of the overwhelming theme. Mm -hmm. And it was also part of why I left Alaska because I really wanted to take over the, my boss's business, but that business from a standalone business proposition is tough because you're working on forest service permits and leases and you really have no ownership and there's nothing really to build and then sell again at some point in your career. Mm -hmm. So I actually made a conscious choice to invest in land back here in Iowa and go that direction instead of continuing, you know, my guiding career up there. So. That's a really good point too. Cause yeah, you're, you're kind of on borrowed time up there. You are. And you're just, you and just have a book of clients and that's the yes. essence of your business. And the other thing that made that business tough is for the future is we were very heavy, heavily invested in brown bear hunting, you know, and if, if things change politically, that would be one of the first type of hunting to be probably restricted. Mm -hmm. So, so you're in Alaska, you're deciding, okay, I want to go back to the Midwest. How did you end up in this part of Iowa? Actually, I met a, I met a guy that was an outfitter from this area, Steve Shoup, who's a great guy and uh, started working for him. And he was, you know, from down, he was from Missouri, Northern Missouri, but had some land in Iowa and I ended up working for him for quite a few years and then starting, you know, my own outfitting and guiding business here in Iowa after that. So, but I met him going through customs up in Canada one day. <laughs> by, by chance. Isn't by chance. Crazy? It is crazy. Some, and, and even, uh, it sounds like one of the, the project partners that you have too, you met on a piece of public in mm -hmm. Illinois. And it's funny how uh, you come across people across your life and then all of a sudden they play such a huge role that you could never imagine on decisions you make or where you live or everything else. Yeah. Yeah. That, that fellow who, you know, I owned two different farms with over the years. Um, you know, we used to hunt a, like a small public land place in Illinois that you had to sign in and out every day. And it was so competitive. We would sleep in our car there to make sure we were in line. Well, this guy was doing the same thing. So we got to be friends and, you know, he, he, and I bought farms in Iowa later on and he still owns farms in Iowa today. Yeah. So, how cool is that? Yep, and so it's awesome. So you land in Iowa based off of just a kind of by chance to be completely honest. Yep. What what was it like that you when you came here that you fell in love with? Well, just the amount, since. the amount of land and the amount of availability or access. You know, when I came here, there hunting in Iowa was just catching on. So you know, in those days, you could literally talk to anybody and be allowed to hunt, and there was tons of land available as far as you know for purchase. It was you know very low priced obviously relative today, but even at that time, relative to what I knew in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, right away that, Hey, this is, you know, this is going to change and I'd like to get in on it at the beginning, you know? Yeah. So. And what year was that roughly? I'm going to say that was the mid nineties, 90. Okay. I think I bought my first farm in, in 97, something like that. So, and all right. So you're back in Iowa, you're kind of starting outfitting, right? Of some sort or right. helping. Yep. And then at what point in your life were you like, ah, I really want to own some land? It was, you know, it was going to the, and like, you know, you guys do going to the trade shows and stuff. We always did the Harrisburg sports show, the great American outdoors show. And just then I could tell the number of people from back East that were inquisitive about the land and what it costs, you know, kind of spurred me like, Hey, this is going to happen. I know this is happening. I need to be in front of it. And I would simply work up in Alaska, I would be up there for, you know, three months at a time, like a fall season was August, you know, September and half of October and save up whatever money I could. And I'd come back to Iowa and buy a farm, you know, because at $500 an acre, it didn't take a whole lot of a down payment, which I could save that up working up there. And mm -hmm. that's kind of how I started buying here in Iowa. Yeah. And so you're, you're, were you always a person that wanted to save your money for that? Or was it just you were so focused on wanting to buy land and come back and build build something here? Yeah, I was I was definitely focused on it enough to save money. I didn't have like a lot of other expenses then. I wasn't married. I didn't have, you know, any children, of course. And yeah, so that was kind of my focus was to make money, save up, you know, make money. And when you work in Alaska, it's easy to save money. I mean, they you don't go to town for, Anything. you know, 30 days, 40 <laughs> days at a time. So there's literally no way to spend money. So. Mm -hmm. So, all right, so you, you move back or you're in the process of getting back in Iowa during the off season of guiding. What, 
what was that process like of looking to buy a farm? Because now you've decided, hey, I have a little bit of money here. I'm ready to go buy something. What did that look like? Yeah, it was a totally different time than it would be today. You know, today there's very limited inventory. Back then there was inventory, you know, tons of stuff available. You could, you know, go to the different realtors. That was really before the internet too. Yeah. So you'd, you had to stop in all their little offices in whatever town was closest, collect up all their sheets or information, and then drive yourself around and try to find all these spots and, and check them out. And it was kind of a slower pace thing than it is today. Um, but the challenge for me and the challenge for everybody at that time was trying to get somebody to, to fund it. Uh, the banks really were not wanting to deal with it right back then. You know, they had just come out of the eighties and the farm crisis. And I think at that time, my first farm, I went to four different banks before one finally said yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was a big deal. So, yeah, that is a big deal. Let's talk. Cause I think that brings up to a different point. Cause right now we're in a, everyone just feels like we're in a kind of interesting time. There's been a lot of sure. excitement around land and obviously you've seen multiple markets. And I said, when we were, when we were with Skip yesterday, the history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. So what do you feel like? Number one, well, the first, the first thing that we, that I learned today here was I didn't really realize that CRP was introduced in the eighties yes. after the farm crash. So yes. talk a little, just a little, cause I asked, well, could this, could the eighties happen again? And you felt maybe probably not. So just explain that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, there's two reasons, you know, two overwhelming reasons that I don't think that we could go back to anything like what happened in the farm crisis. The first one is most land that's financed, the people financing it, what pays for the land is detached from what the land produces. You know, that there's other f sources of income. People have other jobs or other, you know, other things that are funding this. So that's going to, you know, smooth out some of the bumps. And then the other thing is simply CRP. I mean, that sort of sets a baseline of what tillable acres can, should produce or rent for because that's sort of like a safety net. And that's, you know, it was introduced. It was sort of done as almost a bailout to the banks because otherwise the banks were about to own half the real estate in a lot of these Midwestern states because they were going to have to, re, you know, repossess it and they don't want to own it. You know, the banks aren't, don't want to, you know, manage a farm if they don't have to. So that's, that's when the CRP was introduced and that kind of stepped in and provided a cash flow and a reduction in acres to hopefully stabilize, you know, the prices. So mm -hmm. do you think any of that was to help control the commodities as well? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. You know, they, they, they thought at that time, um, by, you know, reducing the number of crop acres that it would raise or stabilize the prices. What they didn't realize is that's about the same time South America and other places figured out how to farm. So a lot of the production got pushed off in other areas, which didn't, you know, help on the stabilization of the price like they thought it would. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. Okay. Sorry. Sightanda. So you, no. you go through these, these, you finally find a bank after four of them yep. to lend you. What were the, do you remember what the terms were like then? It, the interest was high, but not like exorbitant. I mean, it was, I think I was at 7% or 7.5. Um, they f would fix the interest for five years. It wasn't great. I remember the funniest part about it was the the banker. I met, never forget. He called and and he said, I think we're, we're going to be able to do this, which was a huge relief to me because that was my number one hurdle. But then he, he, asked, he asked me, he said, but why would you want it? You know, <laughs> yeah. and that was what was fascinating to me. And I said, for hunting. And he said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And, and I was just like, it you know, I was like, huh, I was kind of a little bit disappointed by his lack of uh, interest in my, in my <laughs> endeavors. Farm. Yeah. But I did, which I don't want to jump too far ahead in yeah. the store. Eventually I did sell that farm. And when I went in to pay it off, I paid it off to him and he just stood there and shook his head and he said, how did you know? <laughs> you know, so that was kind of pretty cool. That is fun to kind of be yeah, like full to circle. see full yeah. circle. So, yeah. well, but, kudos to you because I think some people are like, man, the bank, the bankers are supposed to be smart when they're questioning my purchase. Then, right, you maybe have a level of uh, hesitation. Like, am I, am I doing the good thing? Because you're, you're how you're pretty young at that. point. I was too. 21 years old. Yeah, I was super young, and you know, not 22, something like that. And it was, yeah, yeah it was a big step. You know, and my parents were even like, what in the world are you doing? You know, and. It just made sense at the time. I knew it made sense because I'd seen what happened in Illinois. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it was almost like having a crystal ball. So, yeah, that's so interesting because at the same time, you paid what was it, like four fifty or five hundred an acre, four thirty an acre for the first farm. And what was land in Illinois? I would say that comparable land would be at least 
1,500. Yeah. So it was about a three to one. So you're just thinking, heck, even if this catches up with Illinois yeah, or, if, yeah. or, or three quarters of what right. Illinois is, it's, this ground isn't ha- or this this ground is not that much worse per se from you know tillable or anything else than that ground in Illinois. Right. And it wasn't even so much that I could tell that the price was going to increase. It was more of shit. It was they hadn't seen a shift in Iowa yet. Hunting land didn't exist. It wasn't a category of real estate where in Illinois it was, mm-hmm. you know, so these were being sold as marginal pasture farms. I see. And, you know, if you sold that same farm in Illinois, even at that time, it would have been called a recreational farm because they had a buyer base out of Chicago to sell to yeah. where they didn't in Iowa. But I'm like, it's the same land. It looks identical. This yeah. is definitely going to happen. It just takes long. It's going to take longer. So that's so interesting. And then, so people are thinking, all right, well, you're 21, 22. How, how big could have this farm been? Right. Well, that one was 200 acres. <laughs> that's insane. So, yep. When you say that out loud, that is yep. just insane. And uh, do you want to share how much you paid for it? I paid 86,000. When you say I yep. paid $86,000 for 200 and some acres right. in Iowa. Yeah. It's cr- and beautiful. I mean, nice timber. I mean, it was a, I was, we were talking about it today out of all the farms I've ended up owning and stuff. It's still one of the nicest ones. One of the, one of the, and it's a very well-known farm to this day. So yeah. What made you want to buy that when you saw it? Cause it sounded like you shopped around. A little yeah. Bit. I shopped around a little bit and you know, we just something about that one. It, it had really nice, like river bottom secluded fields. And it was, um, it was just, it was in a, whoever the operator was on the farm at the time had done a really nice job. There was fields and hay and they'd been mowed and they'd kept up with the erosion compared to the other ones we looked at. This one was just much, much nicer. It, you know, it's one of those things once that I tell people looking to buy real estate, if you look at eight or 10 different farms, you'll know when a deal, when a deal comes up because you, then you have a frame of reference. And, you know, I, that's what I was doing unknowingly was creating a frame of reference for myself to, yeah. to that's what I always tell buyers as well. And we're looking at farms like, oh, this isn't it. What, well, that's fine. That's, right. We're getting a better idea of what you really yeah. do want. Yep. And yeah. That's a good way to say it. So did you kill some big deer off that? Myself? You know, this is interesting. I made that farm. It was just, I was totally, totally into bow hunting at that time. And I made it a goal and we made that a, I made that a complete archery only farm for myself. Any guests, anybody else we had, we only bow hunted it. And I never killed a buck on it. Never once. How long? You I'd, had it for a while. Didn't I you? had it for a long time for eight years. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it was all, but you got, you guys got to remember I was a non-resident. Oh yeah. I lived, I was a Minnesota resident at that time. So I didn't have access to a tag very often. Yeah. And because what my strategy would end up being would be, I would get a late muzzleloader tag cause I could get that about every year or every other year. And then I would archery hunt on a late muzzleloader tag, which was, you know, mm-hmm. was and is legal. So. Dang. But yeah, I'd go there during the rut and just watch all these bucks and just shake my head like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. That is crazy. And so when you bought that, were you thinking, okay, well, this, this is 200 acres. This is probably more than I could ever dream, dream to have. Yeah. What, what was it like? Did you have, did you buy other farms after you bought that one? Like without selling it? Yes. Okay. Yep. I ended up buying the next farm to the, that joined it to the East. Mm -hmm. And then it, it was 200 and I think that one was 227 acres. And by now the land had gone up a little bit, but and actually, the land had gone up a little bit. My income had not. <laughs> so I really wasn't in a great position. But I just found the guy's name, drove to the next little town over, knocked right on his door and said, hey, would you ever consider selling that? And he said, yeah, I would. But I don't want to pay the taxes. I would have to own or finance it. And I was like, wow, I don't even know what that is. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I kind of figured out what he was talking about. And he really didn't need that much down. And, um, so I was able to buy that owner finance, which made it even simpler. And, and he was a great, great guy and, you know, had a lot of history in the area. And at one time his family had owned a huge amount of land in that, in that area. So. Wow. That's really interesting. And so I think owner financing is something pretty interesting. Do you see that still today around here? No, but you're going to again, because it's a function of rates. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when interest rates drop to two, 3%, there's no incentive for a landowner, you know what I mean? To, to, to carry the money. But now, you know, if, if a landowner doesn't know where they're going to go with the capital and they're looking to sell, you know, if, if they can make 5%, five and a half percent, that's an attractive thing for somebody who's retiring. And if they can defer some of the gains through that process, all the better. So that's interesting. 
So you anticipate to see more sellers being open to that? Yes. Okay. Yep. As, as interest rates go up. Okay. And so when you bought that, okay, now you, okay, so now you have 400 and how Yeah, many? 427. Yeah, 427. Now, now what is your thought process? Because I'm just thinking if I was in your shoes, I'd just be head of like, you, I, you know, what's funny. I made is, it. This I, is it. <laughs> no, you know, what's funny is I'd seen, you know, now I had a small snapshot of how the land investing works by default. I, that wasn't my intention when I bought it, but I realized you own it. You pay so much for it and then it goes up and, you know, you, your situation gets better through appreciation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was kind of my game plan there. And my, my whole land investing plan was to own a thousand acres and hopefully someday it would be worth a thousand dollars an acre and that would be my retirement. Mm-hmm. The problem, the problem happened is the 400 acres was worth a million dollars in two more years. And then there was no op- or very little opportunity to buy going forward. So things changed, you know, quickly on that side too. So, yeah. And so I'm just thinking with, well, this is the, you don't have to answer this, but I think a, a lot of people that I talk with, so there's multiple people that, you know, they fund a 401k, like they have that form of retirement, or there's people that are just hundred percent in real estate and they think that's the way to go. Right. That's something I struggle with of like, I know everyone has a different approach. Do you have an, any opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, I'm a hundred percent in real estate. I don't have any other, you know, mm-hmm. other than small stuff. I don't have any other, you know, bigger form of assets than real estate. And so. your thought is there with the cash flow of the farms. Like we were yep. on the farm we were on today had a really strong income. Yep. I mean, so that's where you're thinking, you know, cash flow and and if you need to sell a farm or anything else like that. Is- yeah. Cash flow appreciation. And, and as I, you know, get opportunities, if I, sell one that is more of a, a, once I get them completed, you know, more of a finished product hunting farm, I'm always looking to buy something that possibly would have more long-term income. Mm -hmm. So, um, just for that reason, you know, but I, but also through, you know, appreciation, they've been great, you know, great assets. So, yeah. Do you, cause it's just rare because I feel like we're a little bit in a vacuum and I'm, and maybe this is just me being a little bit ignorant because this is an area that I've spent some time in. Sure. Just with the amount of, explosive growth and to be on the on the front end of that i mean i think that's really unique and and really awesome and i think people are like well yeah that's all great but i can't do that where i'm at yeah i mean the i I would still say there's still going to be opportunities Uh you just have to you know for people getting into it if that's sort of your question um there's definitely opportunities but you're going to have to be a lot more open to what opportunities become available like the thing you can't do, which I did in that time, I was looking for the perfect farm. And so I picked through farm after farm after farm. And then at that time there, there was no demand. So I was able to wait and buy it. Nowadays, you're going to have to buy something because it's a good deal. Work with that, eventually sell it and get yourself into the next deal. It, it might take two or three projects to get you to where you want to go. You know, you're never going to find the perfect farm at a low price in the right area. Yeah. You might have to, you might have to buy it's like pick two. Yeah, pick two. Exactly. That's a good way to say it. You know, here are your three things. Pick any, you know, pick yeah. two and we'll go with that. Yeah. And a lot of the people that I deal with, and it, it's sad to a way. And with some of these guys, it's almost comical because, you know, I was showing them farms and trying to work with them, you know, when the land was 1500 bucks an acre and they said, oh, it's too high. It's going to come down. It's too high. Well, they still don't have a farm because mm-hmm. they, you know, kept procrastinating at every price point. And, you know, now, now they don't have it and it's that much less attainable. Or even if at that time someone would have bought a farm that was a B in their mind or a C plus even, it would still have been a great investment. Mm -hmm. You know, if you'd have done that two years ago, five years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So, and so jumping around here, but when you had your 427. Yep. Did you buy any other farms in, or did you have that? That was your... That, that was, was mine. I, until I eventually sold that, I never bought any more okay. other than that. And so, so when you... And what were you doing professionally at the time? It was, you were gu- mostly guiding. guiding. Yeah, almost 100% of my income was, was guiding at some point, which is pretty low income occupation, unfortunately. Great, great. I wouldn't trade those years of my life yeah. for anything, but that's not a like a long-term um, type thing. So Yeah, for sure. And so... Your income, I guess, is not scaling at this time, but you have a lot of your eggs in, in the one basket right. of that farm. Yep. And you're just, uh, would you spend a ton of time on that farm? Like projects? Is that, oh, is, was, tons. That, was that your proving that ground? That was the total proving ground. I mean, I did, like, I've learned everything <laughs> you could learn by doing it wrong many times <laughs> first. I mean, that's, that's one that taught us a lot. I mean, I could, 
I could tell stories after story. I bought, I borrowed a tractor and a corn planter from a farmer neighbor there just to plant some food plots. I was so excited about it. And I had, I could not figure out how the markers worked. Like when one would drop on one side and then lift up, I would try, I didn't understand that you just drive down the middle of where the marker made the mark. I thought you drove over one side or the other. I had corn planted all over the place, every direction. (laughs) It was like a complete fiasco. But that's how you learn. Yeah, so. you have to do that. And I think you made a really good point when we were out uh, checking out Farms Today of you started this journey because you wanted to be, because you just wanted to hunt big deer. You just wanted right. to be a good deer hunter. Exactly. And then all the skills that you've learned, like real estate investing, right. logging, right. Uh, farming, habitat, farming. Yep, CRP. C- C- yep. Every, and it's like- Negotiating with the government on yeah. all these contracts. And, and I think that's yep. such a fascinating thing because I've never really had anyone put it that way. Deer, deer make people say like deer make you do crazy stuff. Well, deer make you a lot smarter too. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's definitely a journey, and it's it's led me in a lot of different directions that I wouldn't have gone without that for sure. Yeah, but, yeah. Just think of all the people that that you deal with that would have never bought real estate if they did not if they were not completely obsessed with deer. Right, right. And and it's amazing how many people start with the obsession for deer, but actually gravitate towards a different side of it. Like I've got guys that are just crazy about their food plots, and that's become their passion. I would say equal to or more than the yeah. than the hunting itself. That's a really fair point too. So, um, and as you were going through these proving grounds, what was happening in the neighborhood? Because obviously the land exploded. Was it because you ended up like in, in? I didn't really realize this until today of what exactly was your first farm. I, right, I misunderstood that, or I don't know if we ever talked yes. about it. Yep. And so as you piece that four, so you had four twenty seven. Four twenty seven. That would have been, by the time of the second, it would have been the early 2000s by the time I owned the second farm, 2002, something like that. And you had a new neighbor. So, yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, he he had been in the area a lot. It's a guy that everybody knows, Bill Winky. Um, that, that immediate area, the area between the town of Albion and Blakesburg, had a large farm that was owned by some well-known hunters. Um, and that was where Bill lived. He was actually like the manager of the farm for a while. It was a a corporation that owned, I'm going to say roughly 4,000 acres. Um, and they, you know, there were some bigger named hunter guys that were members and it was kind of, it was kind of the place of that time in Iowa for hunting. And I happened to buy the land in or near there without realizing it. Yeah. I just bought the farm I liked and it happened to be smack dab in the middle of all this. Uh-huh. So that's how that part, uh, worked out there. That is pretty crazy because you just bought the place because you really like. Because I like the layout. Yep, yeah, I, like I didn't realize any other things about it. So and then so in that process, were you convinced like you're never going to sell that farm at yes. any point? Yep, absolutely. I was convinced of that. I had no intentions of ever selling it. I would never even consider that. That was my farm. The only goal was to expand. That was it. You know, there was no thought of, of expand the, as in just continue to piece together. Yes, that farm. add pieces to that farm. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. And I got to know all the neighbors, and you know, had hoped if something this guy decides to sell, I'll get the chance or mm-hmm. this or that. And you know, as um, but even still, then at that time, my situation of income hadn't changed a lot. So, but I was developing equity through the farm, so I I'd started to figure out that side of the game that you know, my ability, even though my income hasn't changed, my ability to purchase has because what I have now is worth so much more. So substantially. Yeah. When so, you, when you bought that first one at uh, 82,000, how much did you have to put down on that? I want to say I put, put about, I want to say I put about 12 or 13,000 down. It wasn't a lot. It was yeah. like maybe eight, 15%, something like that. Yeah. And it, it, it was not 20,000. I know that it was less than 20, it was somewhere in that, in that range. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that I'll never forget about that is, you know, there were so many hurdles in my mind. And now today I deal with them daily on real estate deals, but one was the appraisal, you know, because at this point I realized if the, the guy had told me if the appraisal doesn't come back right, then you might have to come up with more money, which that was not good. And <laughs> <laughs> so so I got the appraisal back and I was all excited because it appraised like they usually do right about the price you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the appraisal said at the bottom property, you know, it, it listed all the categories of land and it had a map. It had cropland, it had pasture land, and then all the timber was marked and it was called wasteland. <laughs> and I'm like, what is wasteland? You know, why yeah. am I buying wasteland? And, but in that, their mind, it, timber had zero value. They were assigning 
zero value to the wooded land. See, and what's so, crazy? Did people people used wood? That, oh, yeah, so like, and the, and people did cut timber back yeah. then, so they must have. But I don't think the banks, because they couldn't put a number on it, I don't think they used it for their calculations. Sure. You know, which and it's still sort of that way. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, they still don't want to. If you want to use timber in a you know, evaluation of a farm, it takes quite a bit of documentation to get the banks to pay attention compared to, oh, this is a CRP contract or mm -hmm. crop rent. So have you had, have you done that or have you had a client do that where they try to use the timber and go through that process, get a bid from a forester of standing value and use it in any sort of a purchase? We have, yep, but not, we have, and we've done it quite a few times, but exactly the opposite of why you would think they weren't doing it to get a value for the loan. They were getting it as a basis for tax reasons for later. Uh. Because one thing about timber, you know, if you have a timber farm and you get the timber appraised, so when you buy the farm, you have $100,000 worth of standing timber. And that could be every tree over a certain size or however the forester does it. Say you go in and cut 50000 worth of your timber, you've depleted the value or depreciated that. So that's actually a deduction on your taxes. That's mm -hmm. a depletion deduction. So we, a lot of times, will do a timber appraisal or have one done so that we can capitalize on depreciation later on. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's a very yeah. long answer to a kind of a different question than you asked. Well, that's a good point, though. Yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that a really common practice? It should be. Yeah. If people knew how it works, it should be. If you ever plan on, if you have any plan of harvesting timber, it definitely needs to be done. So that's really, that's great advice. Cause then that's okay. So let's just walk through, let's dive through that just a little bit deeper. So sure. you, you use that $50,000 deduction on just your general tax return for that upcoming year or right. for, for that. Okay. For right. that farm. Yep. And it goes against your, your personal. income of all your other stuff, or you can spread the depreciation out over five years or however you want to do it. Uh -huh. Yep. So Man, I'm paying too much tax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if there's definitely... <laughs> That's what I've learned yep. on this trip. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, but a lot of people, you know, up front to get a forester to go in there and pay them 1000 or 1200 bucks yeah. to do it, you know, they're like, oh, that's too much. Well, maybe not. Yeah, depending on, yeah, depending on yep. how much of a cut so, you're going to do. Yeah. That's really good advice. So, okay, that's, that's good information. Okay, so um, as you're going through this process, you don't want to sell that farm, but obviously you ended up selling that farm. Yep. What... Walk through that process because obviously uh, Bill's your new neighbor, and it's. I mean, from we had the the privilege of talking with him too, and it was clear that he had a, a vision of trying to piece together as much yep. as possible. So you were kind of in that path. This is actually there's another step to this story, and we talked about it a little bit today. Through owning my own farm and then meeting some clients that I guided, a couple of them approached me about helping them with some basically forming a partnership. And we would mm -hmm. buy land together. So I was doing that. So when I say I didn't buy a farm, I had, but in a partnership, sure. not myself. Okay. So the way my farm got on the market, because I had never had any intention in selling us, we had bought a farm down on the Missouri line, a really, really neat farm, good project, and bought it, you know, worth the money. And we're going to try to sell it. I didn't have a real estate license, but I was going to try to sell my own farm. Mm -hmm. So this for sale by owner. Yeah, for sale by owner. And through a friends of a friend connection, I got a guy who was a very serious buyer. So me and my novice sales knowledge, I was trying to sell this farm in Southern Iowa. So I, or, you know, down on the Missouri line. And I think we, we had priced it at about 2000 an acre. And I told the guy, well, you know, this farm down here, this is a good area. The price structure is a little bit less. I said, well, I have a farm in Monroe County. And if I was going to sell that, I'd have to have 2,500 an acre. The guy immediately said, let's go look at it. <laughs> and I was kind of dumbfounded, like, what did I just do? But then I said, all right, let's go look at it. Not going to hurt to go yeah, look. Right. Yeah. So we drive him around on it. He liked it a lot. And he, to this day, is probably one of the bigger hunting landowners in Monroe County. And he didn't own any farms here at this time. Mm -hmm. And, but what he did was he's, he's a very savvy guy. He knew a lot of people in the hunting industry and everything, and he had he knew Bill Winky. So he calls Bill Winky and said, hey, I'm looking at a farm in your neighborhood. Do you know anything about it? And Bill instantly went, what? That's not for sale. And he goes, well, yeah, this guy talked to me about it. <laughs> so now Bill's all interested. So whether he... If he if Bill did pull this off, he's a salesman of the year. Somehow he <laughs> talked the guy out of buying it. 
<laughs> literally uh-huh and like, cre- creatively uh-huh. and probably honestly with you know some ideas and the guy ended up not buying mine which was fine i didn't really he didn't buy either of those farms mm-hmm. and then about two weeks later bill called me and he said hey would you consider selling that well i'd already kind of mentally gone through the process of, of like, what oh, I, I guess i would for yes you know what i mean and i'm and i'm thinking so now i'm like in a big conundrum and mm-hmm. what do i do and so that, that started this whole process with Bill and it, it took a long time. They had a lot of things going on and they needed to get a lot of pieces to fit for them, for them to be able to buy from me. And we eventually did. And I think I sold it to Bill in 2007. So 2007. Yeah. So, and what was, when was that initial conversation? Like 2007 as well? I would pro- no, I would probably say that was probably sometime in 2006. So it took about a year for, for you to mull it over. Well, that and them, them to get, they had oh, some sure, other sure. investments going yeah. on that they needed to line up to Tie make up. it work. Okay. And yep. Yeah. So we've, I know we closed in the summer of 2007. So. Interesting. And then ironically at that same time, about the, within that same time, I sold that other farm that I was originally trying to sell. So I was trying to find a reinvest two farms. Now I went from yeah. nothing to having it the, in 2007 too. Right. Or, which was a peak here. Yeah. 2007 was a peak, you know, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. You know, it was, it was crazy times to have, you know, all of those deals happening at once and trying to buy more farms to, and you're still keep, just a guy to this time too. Yeah. I just don't say guy. Just a well, guy, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, but that's, that's my, you know, that was my career and occupation at the time. You know, we were into guiding and, you know, I was still going back. I wasn't going to Alaska anymore. Then I quit that about 2004 or five when the girls were born. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, but I, I was guiding here and yeah, that was it. And we, by then we'd kind of, started to do some of the work on the farms ourselves and kind of got into some of that, that type stuff. So, yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that's, so. that's really cool. So then as you, you bought the first one for 82, do you remember what you paid for the other? I think I paid 600 or 630 an acre for that one. So, so quick math, what, how much were you uh, in all, all the way on that? Two, that one would have been. 630 you said for yeah, the Yeah, 630 for the 227. 227. Yep. So one forty three. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say I was into a two fifteen or something. So you're in for two twenty five. Two twenty five. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so crazy. And then so after you sold that, that 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 had to feel life changing at that. Point. It was life changing, and and that was one of the things that I wrestled with um, in selling it. It was like you know, hey, if I do this, my girls can go to college wherever they want. You know, this mm-hmm. this is kind of a life changing thing for for my situation. So I, I would be, eventually I felt that if I didn't do it, I would have been selfish. You know what I mean? To some degree. And then, um, yeah, that was a, you know, that was a big part of it. And then, you know, the other thing is too, and we talked about how real estate works in Iowa and we don't have title or title insurance, but we have abstracts that are a living history of the farm. And I had the abstracts to these farms. And if you read through them, from the 1850s till I bought it, everybody and their brother went broke on these farms, mm-hmm. you know? And I read that and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, that is I'm, kind walking, of an thing, yeah. I'm walking away like the undisputed champion of the history of this little farm, yeah. you know? And I thought maybe, you know, maybe that's telling me something that I ought to do this. You yeah. know what I mean? So, um, yeah, yeah that's interesting. That, and well, that brings up a point in itself of how impactful the white-tailed deer was. Yep. Because, okay, you just mentioned there's multiple generations of failed farmers on that parcel. Right, exactly. And now all of a sudden you introduce big deer yeah, the, and changes the, everything. The One of the owners, there was some real short-term owners immediately ahead of me on the first track. But before that, that was a family century farm. They lost a farm that was paid for by borrowing money to feed cows. Jeez. And, and I, I feel terrible. I know the people to this day, but it's a terrible thing because... They literally missed it by just a few years. Mm-hmm. You know, if they would have been able to hang on just a few years, that there would have been enough wealth. Sad. It yeah. is. Yep. Which I think brings up a point too, where, and and you can share on this, but I think it's easy to to continue with momentum and, and get too much steam. But like, I think it's really important to have a good emergency fund, have a good contingency plan to yes. weather a storm with cash. Yes. Because with Absolutely. cash, you can survive anything. You can survive. Yeah, that that's for sure. And, you know, it would go up against popular land investing techniques, but, you know, don't strip all the equity out of your farms. You know, everybody wants to buy one, get it refinanced, take that money, go buy another one, take that money, go buy another one. That'll work till it doesn't. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and I'm not afraid to leave some equity on these deals because that's where my sort of cash reserve sits is equity on these places. 
Yeah. So that's, that's good advice. So, uh, all right. So you go from a kid from Illinois that right. buys 400 acres and right. so you're, how old are you when you sold the 400? Well, seven, what would have been, I'd have been probably thirties. So yeah. 13 years ago. Yeah. Mid thirties, mid to late thirties. Mid thirties. Yeah. You sell yep. a farm for a million some dollars. Right. Right. Which crazy. is nuts, which is crazy. I yeah. remember taking the check to the bank and the people are like double taking it, <laughs> you know, because I thought you just got it. Right. <laughs> Be- exactly. Because the other thing was, and right or wrong, knowing what I know now, I would have done it differently, but I did not 1031 that. I paid the, Ooh, yeah. I paid the gain and kept the money. Was it because you didn't really understand the 1031? No, or? I did yeah. actually. My, on the, we also had the investment group. Mm-hmm. One of those guys was a financial, my main partner was a financial planner. Mm-hmm. And he was a pretty strong advocate that, um, that the, this could be the lowest the rates ever are. 15% percent's not that bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of rolling ahead, knowing what I know now, I would have just rolled it ahead because we still haven't faced that. We still have virtually still the deferred, same. still deferred, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I ended up paying that, holding the money, and then, and then not right away, but then I did jump back in and start buying land again. So, mm-hmm. well, I think you, and how long, that was a decent break though, right? Wasn't that one of your bigger regrets? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I waited way important. too long to, to go back in. Once, um, you know, we saw land take a big dip in 2008 here, 2008, nine, when the whole housing thing screwed up. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, I should have really been way more aggressive because I had the ability to do it at that point. And I was still kind of just stepped stepped to the sidelines. I bought another oh, 150 or 170 acre farm in Appanoose County, and I was comfortable with it. And we were doing some big time projects. We built a huge watershed pond on it, and I was involved in a lot of projects. So I was just kind of in chill mode on that property. Without it was enough to own a farm, but it, I wasn't being aggressive and and moving forward again. So mm-hmm. so it wasn't until gosh, it wasn't until probably you know, seven or eight or eight or 10 years ago that I really started, you know, trying to, if we fixed up a project, get it sold, look for the next one, keep moving. Mm-hmm. And then if you have the opportunity to, to get to do that, and that's when it's really kind of moved ahead. So, mm-hmm. so I think, uh, I always, it's always great to have, to talk with people that have seen multiple market cycles. So obviously 2007 was near the peak. You sold it pretty good timing. Yes. And yeah. Very had, good time. You had a strong cash position yep. during that time frame. but what was, what was just the general atmosphere? What did it feel like? Were people just scared and like, ooh, I don't want to, I don't want to buy anything because it's gonna, it's all gonna go to zero. Yeah, it's always, yeah. it's always like, it's never gonna stop, or it's never gonna stop, never right. gonna stop going up, or it's never gonna well, stop going down. You know, I, I worked with some out of the area, and I must have, I'm trying to remember when I got into real estate as with my real estate license because it would have occurred sometime in that time frame. Um, but I, I worked, had already been working with some other investors and just helping them with farms, managing farms for them and stuff. And this thing that shocked me was these are very successful people. They stopped buying when the market crashed. And that's what freaked me out mm-hmm. because I'm like, well, these guys have the resources. This should be the time to buy. Yeah. You know, but they didn't. And that was, and I thought, what am I missing? You know, I've got to be missing something. And the phrase that they always used was never try to catch a falling knife. You know, and, and I guess that comes from stocks and that kind of stuff, but it didn't make any sense to me because land is land. And, you know, in my mind, eventually it'll only go up. So, mm-hmm. yeah, with, uh, but something, one of, one of the interesting things too, what that you're talking about, like during the eighties, I think it was, mm-hmm. it was a 20 year stretch. So if you would have bought at the peak in yeah. that time frame in this area, this is very localized, obviously yep. different parts of the country have different results, but at this area, if they would have bought at the peak, it would almost took 20 years. Yeah. Roughly if you would have bought land in Monroe County, Iowa, in 1983 at county average price would have been about 1300 bucks an acre it would have taken until 2003 for until it was worth that again and that's part that's the part that really you have to think about when you see what we were doing buying land because it wasn't easy like it is now where people everybody wants it they're just a lot of people didn't want it you know i mean there weren't that many buyers you know the banks were afraid if you bought it how what if they have to get rid of it? So yeah. it was definitely a different time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, and that was the direct question. I said, well, okay, there was a 20-year stretch. That It's a lot to ask someone to weather that storm. Right. I mean, and you don't think that's necessarily would happen or be recreated at no, this point. No, not, not at not all. Not to that scale. Yeah, not at yeah. all. Not yeah. even close. Yeah. There's so much more interest in the land now. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, from all categories of people, it's just, you know, people 
it, it maybe it's just the fact that so much has become virtual in our society that people want something tangible, you know? Yeah. That, that's a great, really great point. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The original NFT is an yes, abstract exactly. or a deed. <laughs> you, can add, you can buy this land, do whatever you yes. want. Uh, that's a good point. So as you, you know, you have this strong cash position, the market has a downturn. And then what was the year you ended up buying that one? I'm going to say it was a year or two later. It wasn't, like it wasn't 08, long. 08, 08, 09. It was during the middle of things, you know, going, yeah. going bad. I bought that farm. And then we were still buying a few investment farms when we could at that time. But um, actually bought a couple farms in Missouri. Um, went down there because we couldn't find the quite the as good of a deal as we used to be able to get in Iowa. Um, we didn't realize that it was just the change in the market, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so I ended up up with you know quite a few farm, you know, building back to having quite a few farms again, and and then you know just managing that and trying to fix them up and go forward. Yeah, that that's so interesting. Do you? Value land is one of the best decisions you've ever made. Absolutely. I mean, tenfold, you know, of any financial thing I've ever done, it's 10 times ahead of everything else because I learned all the lessons about it. You know, like I didn't understand leverage, even though it was happening. I didn't realize that I can buy something worth, you know, $100,000, but only have to put $10,000 down, but it appreciates across the whole value, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was happening and I saw it happen firsthand. I thought, oh my gosh, you know. You don't go to the bank and say, oh, I'd like to buy $100,000 in the stock market. Here's 10 grand. You know, that's not going to be too, yeah. you know, very well received for most people. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing too, I've asked a handful of folks that question and it's the people that are just absolutely infatuated with land too. And I think that's the importance right. of it because like you understand it. You can go look at it. Yep. You can dive into it. You can look at things that other people don't where I think if you're like haphazardly like, well, everyone else says land's a great investment. I think it could work out better if you are just you know, infatuated with it. Would yeah, you, you got, yeah, you definitely, you will do way better at it if you truly have a passion for it. Yeah, so, and that's anything. Yes, and one thing that, you know, there's certain types of people, to, uh, investors don't like is it's somewhat illiquid. You know, there's a process to selling it. Mm-hmm. You can't just hit the bid the morning that it goes up a little bit and the money shows up back in your account. You know, if you get into it, it could take, in Iowa, three or four months to get out of it. You know, just before it's converted to cash again. So that's, you know, that's a different level of commitment um, than some people want in an investment. So. Yeah. What, what were some lessons that you learned along the way? Cause you, you know, you've bought and improved multiple farms over the years. You've looked at, a, I, don't, I don't know how many deals you've looked at. Oh, I would hate to know the number, but it would be a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one thing, one of the things that I've learned is a farm that has crop history like everything being, even if they're equal, a farm that has crop history, meaning that it was in CRP in the past, or it's been farmed for a period of seven or eight years, that has a huge amount of value. It doesn't change anything about the farm, but it gives you so many more options going forward as other revenue streams. To buy a farm that's like a straight pasture farm that's never been farmed, and then think you're going to convert that to CRP, that could be a 10-year process. Yeah. You know, so there is quite a bit of value to farms that have a, a current, you know, crop history. That's that's one thing that I've definitely learned. And then the other one we spoke of um, this morning is don't be afraid of like junk or rough looking places. You know, that's very easy to clean up. Those are small costs spread across a large farm. You know, if there's a bunch of a junky homestead or something like that, that turns off a lot of buyers. But that's just a, a reason to buy for me or another reason to yeah. try to get involved. More forced so. appreciation. Yes. And, and it, I, there's so many people at uh, Pat Porter, you know, so take the imagination out of it. Right. So like you can you can look past it, but a lot of people can't. Yep. Uh, of what those issues are. And so I think that's a really good thing. So, I mean, whew, that's it, to me, that's probably if you had to boil down like how to find a, a good deal, it's find something that you can fix. Yes. Find something you can fix. Something that will turn other people off that you can solve a problem. If you can solve a problem, that's, you know, then, then you'll be able to find a deal. So what are some of the biggest problems that you guys typically that you fixed in the past? Um, one of the big problems that we've had to fix, and this is something that, uh, you know, all Iowa potential landowners should be aware of is how Iowa works with fences and it's kind of a screwed up deal, but it can impact a farm greatly. Basically, if you own a farm, you own half the fence of the farm. And you're responsible for half the fence, whether you have cows or not. So, you know, we've, we've taken on projects where, 
we've had to bulldoze out and rebuild literally miles of fences, you know, and it's a major undertaking. It's not to be taken lightly. Like people, I'll tell this to potential buyers, Hey, we, there's one thing I don't like about this farm and it's the fencing situation. This, you're going to have to spend some money and they're, you know, they're looking at you dumbfounded. Like, why would I have to do fence? Well, technically in Iowa you do. So, um, we've had some big challenges on that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of houses, I'd, I don't even know the number of houses we've burned down and bulldozed and stuff like that and cleaned up and, mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Those are, you know, bigger challenges. Um, yeah, not, not a lot of other stuff that I would say have been insurmountable or anything like that. So fences, old homesteads, what about access, general access? Yeah. Access is always a struggle, you know, and, and that's a, that's a very tough one. A lot of times you'll see a farm on the market and it won't sell because it only has one-sided access or something. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that would be, is a, is a great problem to solve because it may or may not cost a lot of money. It's just a, a wildly unknown thing, you know, through easements or permissions or, or buying more land. We've had success doing that where we bought one and then waited it out and bought the next piece that puts two, you know, really makes a farm by adding two farms together. Yeah. So, yeah. Buy that additional access. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. And more than likely too, uh, depending on the area, but Maybe they have funky access too, but if you put the two together, then right, the farm you can has solve a above problem. average access exactly. putting them together, but without both of them, right? Both it's sub yeah, you're only hunting it on one wind or something like that. So yeah, that's that's definitely good advice. I'm just thinking here. I mean, this is a question I always like to ask people. Sure. Where, you know, it's easy to look back and say, well, you know, I could do it. Anyone can do it. But like someone listening right now, they're thinking, you know, gosh, you know, the glory days are over. Uh, that would be impossible to repeat what you've done, and maybe to the same scale in timeline that might be challenging, but what would you say to that person? Is it realistic? Could they do it again? They want to buy their first farm. Yeah, you absolutely could still do it. Um, you're just going to have to broaden the scope of your search a little bit and find something that you can create value. But there may be, like I was saying earlier, there may be two or three steps to this. You may have to buy one in an area, not exactly where you want to be something, build a little bit of equity through solving problems on that one and then reselling it you know, and then, but you can definitely still get in the game though. The, there's more programs available today through banks to get people in than there were when I started. That's one thing that's available right now. Um, a lot more options and financing and the banks are on board with buying land right now. Mm -hmm. You know, back then it was, you were like pulling teeth to get them to even talk to you. So, you know, there are challenges now that there weren't then, but it also works the other way around. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, Iowa, right here where we're at, saw in a really impressive run over the last 40 years, let's say. Where would you want to, okay, Steve, you got to sell everything. You got to start over. You're 20 years old again. Right. And you're full of energy. You're ready to rock and roll, which you're still full of energy today. But anyhow, <laughs> you're starting over at 20. Where are you packing up and moving? You're getting back from Alaska and you run into a new guy. and He's like, oh, you got to come out here. Where, where would that be? I would probably Western Kansas. I would probably go somewhere on the fringe of where deer hunting is good right now. And because I, you know, whitetails always keep expanding their habitat and they do seem to That's a good thrive point. in areas that thrive, meaning, you know, to produce exceptional bucks, not just average bucks. The herd produces, it seems to produce better while it's rapidly growing and expanding than it is once you kind of get to the fishbowl thing where deer are overpopulated. Mm -hmm. So I would try to get just on that fringe, but out ahead of it enough that you could still buy some land without having to compete with the hunting value of it currently. Yeah. So it's like speculation. Of, yeah. You're kind of speculating on speculation the, yeah, of, exactly. world-class so, whitetails yes. to emerge yep. into there. That's really fascinating. So yeah. that's where you'd go. Yeah. It'd be hard because life in Iowa here is great. Like we have great people. We have great towns. Agreed. It's kind of a small, you know, we don't have to drive 50 miles to get to town. We can drive yeah. 10 miles and be about anywhere. So, so the question becomes, okay, if that is the case and they start right? killing world-class whitetails, will the communities build around that? I would think so. I mean, it yeah. pretty much did here, you know, that yeah. it's amazing. The number of people that live here, you know, once you know, everybody's backstory, how many people are here, transplants. Yep, are transplants here for the hunting. And that's what drove them here. So. That's interesting. Is there any other areas that would be on the second list or is it pretty much that would be it? Without some, well, the, yeah, there is the other one, which would be the dream of dreams. It just would take a lot more logistics would be Alberta because Alberta has the, they have the high end whitetail population at times. I think that's because they 
don't have high numbers. They're constantly losing them to winter kill and stuff. So the population is always in some form of, of rebuilding. control. Yes. So, you know, they, but Alberta just has, you know, unlimited opportunities to hunt. Like every, I think they have 13 big game species. It's, it's truly would be a paradise. That would be the other one. It would just take a lot more problem solving to figure out how to be a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. That's really, that's really fascinating. So what, what piece of advice would you give someone that is looking to buy their first farm? I know you mentioned expand your search horizons, but what are, what's something else that, you know, someone calls you up, Hey Steve, um, I'm really wanting to buy my first piece of ground in your area. I'm really not sure where I'm at. I just know I really want to own ground. One thing that, you know, I would definitely tell people to do is once you've made the commitment to yourself, you're going to do it, be aggressive. You know what I mean? Be aggressive and don't, you know, and if you see what you want, buy it. You know, that's so many people, because that doesn't cost anything. Mm -hmm. Like being aggressive doesn't cost anything. And it's something everybody can have right now. You know what I mean? And I've seen so many people that are, you know, teeter totter on the line. And then this farm gets away from them, that farm. It's like, time gets go away for from it. Them. Yep. And I will say the only proof to that is I, I've probably been involved in hundreds of real estate transactions, literally, and I've never had anyone regret it. And that's the honest truth. Never, you know, that's, and that, that pretty much tells it right yeah. there, you know? Yeah. And that was the fascinating thing with doing this podcast is talking to so many people that you can tell, and, and I'm, I'm no different. Like, Hey, that's a lot of money. Like this, right. is, this, sure. this is all of it right here to buy my first farm. And then it's right. like so happy along the way. It's just making that jump. And, uh, you know, like if you're listening to this too, I feel like you're probably well more educated than what most oh. first time buyers are too. Yeah. I mean, the resources available today, like this podcast, I mean, this, I mean, it's huge. We were literally shooting from the hip back then. I mean, I didn't understand <laughs> anything, you know, we didn't, you know, we just did it, it and it worked yeah. out, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the interesting thing of this market's getting more sophisticated. And we were talking earlier, like, yeah, someone could do it again, but realistically, probably the, the general margin is probably just a little bit less than what it would have been back then. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't, you can't expect the, you know, you're going to, you're going to get into this and, and you're going to do well, you know, hitting singles and maybe a double, you're not going to hit the grand home slide, runs grand and slide, knock yeah. it out of the park. I mean, yeah. those, those deals, you know, are, are fewer and far between today, but, but it doesn't mean you can't do it and you can't do well doing it. It's, it's here to happen. So. Yeah. I think that's, and that's any, any business and any, like, just think of every, think of a different market. It just continues, right. it gets more sophisticated. Right. And, you know, it's it's a good, healthy thing for the market, too. Sure. There's probably other ways where it works out. But I think it's uh, it's always, it's always like, I think logging is kind of like this, too, in my opinion, right now. Like, there's not a lot of general education. And maybe it is. I just haven't right. dived, dove sure. into it. But it still like, feels like a very antiquated industry. Right. Process. Yes. Yeah. Like, the, the, the knowledge gap between different people is great. Yeah. And the, the one thing about the, the timber industry that is very, very unusual is it is very guarded on who knows what and That's what, what they'll tell you. Yeah. You know, it's almost, I mean, I struggled with that for a long time, you know, cutting our own timber and stuff and trying to break into markets and meet buyers and learn the process and all that kind of stuff. And that's very, protected. there's, there's a big learning curve to that part of it. That's, you know, that, you know, that, if you're doing it on your own starting now, you know, I would encourage anybody to work with a forester at least on one or two projects, you know, whether you still cut it yourself, but have the, have a forester help you market it, help mark the trees because you can't, you know, you, you don't get them back if you cut them wrong, number one. Yeah. And, you know, a guy like that's going to add at least 10 to 15, whatever he's charging, he's going to add double in value of exposing you to other markets and letting you learn. So, Yeah. I'm trying to think here. Is there anything else that is there anything else I should have asked you on your story? I don't think so. I think you got a lot of it covered. Yes, yeah. it would have been cool, and, and maybe uh, maybe we'll chop up some of the conversations we had today just with the mics yeah. that we had on because I think there's a lot of really good information on there. Gosh, um, there's a so yeah. Much I mean, we didn't get into you know CRP at all, burning. Yeah. I mean, We're we didn't get to into do another. another one. Yeah, we'll have to We're, do a habitat podcast yeah, or something like that because that's a big a big passion of ours as well. And yeah. And one, one tidbit here is like, just for instance, if you're enrolling into a new, new CRP contract, you have to own the farm for a year. Correct. Typically. Yep. That's an but important an, part. But with an equip program, you can apply the day after you buy it. Yep. Yeah. They're both, you know, ways to increase the habitat on your farm. One takes a year, one you can start immediately. And that's, those are good things to know. So yeah. 
We'll definitely, because like I said, I feel like we just scratched the surface, and that's always a good thing because that means there's more, more to be had. Way more. Yeah, and I just, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, share your, you know, spend your Sunday with us. Yeah, no worries. Farm. I'm really excited to see what those card pulls look like. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're in yeah, pretty good be cool. spots. And uh, yeah, I just thank you very much. And oh, for thank people, you guys. To, people to find you and maybe they have questions or maybe they want to buy ground in Monroe County, Iowa, how can they get a hold of you? Well, you know, our, our office, Hawkeye United Country out of Albia, that's where I work out of for the real estate stuff. And then, um, you know, you can find me on Instagram. It's just under my name. Steve Hansen the third. So those are probably the two simplest ones. Awesome. So I encourage people to do it because I learned a lot here today and uh, look forward to the next time. Yeah, same here. Thank you. There you guys have it. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. Tomorrow on the Exodus podcast, we have Skip Sly talking all things whitetails in terms of states. What are what states are good? What states are bad? What states could be good? And also we're talking about um, general habitat improvements and how powerful a chainsaw can be to improve your farm so or parcel that you have for permission or anything else so i hope you guys tune into that tomorrow until next time see you guys